Hey everyone, welcome back. We are still on a bit of a holiday break because New Year's is coming up. So this week I'm doing just a straight interview, but you will absolutely want to hear this. It is with Brett and Alice from the Prosecutors Podcast. Both are real life prosecutors, coworkers, friends, and co-hosts. We do not discuss where they live or work because of their jobs. They want to remain anonymous, but I guarantee you they are both real prosecutors. I know who they are. I'm so excited. We've been talking about doing this forever. And Alice, I talk to Brett all the time, but I never get to talk to you. So this is... I know. I'm so jealous. I hope you know that. I'm super <laughs> jealous of him, but you know, whatever. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the Prosecutors Podcast is one of my favorite in their podcast. They dive into some of the most notorious true crime cases and use their unique perspective to talk about them. So in this episode, we talk about the other side of the fence because we often talk from the defense side in this podcast. So we get to hear from two real-life prosecutors, and I present them with Darrell Ewing's case, who you know from episode eight. I thought this was a really good case to talk about with them because it covers so many different issues, and they brought to light some really interesting perspectives I just just had not thought about. We dive into the case, the evidence, the appeals, and I ask them, would they have prosecuted this case? And why is Kim Worthy still appealing despite the evidence? I also know that this conversation is probably going to bring up a lot of questions, a lot of thoughts, a lot of opinions. So if you have those, come join the discussion on the Unjust and Unsolved podcast Facebook group. So I want to start with you guys, though, um, to introduce yourselves, tell the listeners who you are, tell them about your podcast. It is honestly my favorite podcast. It is. I message Brett. I'm like, what? It's not out yet. Like I have errands to do. I need to listen. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Everything you guys do is amazing. So, yeah. Tell listeners about yourselves. Well, hey, Maggie, it's it's great to be here with you. Uh, So awesome to join you. My name's Brett. I'm the co-host with Alice of the Prosecutors Podcast. And, you know, long story short, Alice and I are both active prosecutors that we do this for our day job. And then at night, we record a podcast about cold cases and really kind of try and dive into that and show using some of the things we've learned and the techniques we use every day, um, maybe what we can learn from the evidence that's out there and try and help people understand the cases and what's going on. In them. Right. Maggie, thank you for having us. I'm Alice. Uh, and like Brett said, um, we are real live prosecutors. So we work all day. Uh, and we decided to do what we do at work all the time, which is dive deep into cases because we find it deeply interesting. And we found a lot of um, true crime media out there lacking in the sense that people always wanted to know about the law side. And there didn't seem to be anyone bringing that perspective. And we thought, well, that's our expertise. Maybe we can add something. And that's why we started in quarantine uh, to record this podcast and me literally in my closet. You know, you have families, you were full-time prosecutors, like how you even have time to do it is just amazing to me. Well, thank you for what you do too. Um, Brett and I both religiously listen to your podcast and the type of work you do, we as prosecutors find very, very rewarding because we say it on our podcast and we think um, the majority of prosecutors are there to look for justice. And there are obviously cases where something goes awry. And sometimes there's even prosecutorial misconduct. And that needs to be weeded out because it gives a bad name to the justice system. And when the system breaks down, society breaks down. The system only works if people trust it, if they trust the police, if they talk to the police, if they think prosecutors are going to do the right things, if they think people aren't being railroaded. 
and the system needs to work because you talk about you, you talk on your show about victims of the justice system, people who've been improperly incarcerated. We work every day with with victims, people who suffer from crime, and those people deserve justice. And if the wrong person, you know, your 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 podcast is perfectly named "Unjust and Unsolved" because these people. It's not just about the person who's wrongfully convicted. It's about the victim who never got justice and their case was never solved. And I, like I've said with you before, we're on the same team. We really are. That's what I think. I think it should be the same team. And, you know, you guys are, are young and, and you're working in the, the system now. And But so many of these cases, you know, are back in Ronnie's from the 70s. A couple of them that I do are from the 80s. You know, it's this old you know, the, the, the old system that just was so bad. And I know it's naive to, you know, be like, I hope it's better now. We're not doing wrongful convictions, but I really do like seeing you guys is encouraging. And I, and I really hope that we are really weeding out those bad guys and getting, getting to more of, you know, the justice aspect and really getting justice for victims um, on both sides, you know, conviction integrity units, conviction review units. I mean, that's my, Maybe I'm naive. I don't know. <laughs> I have hope. I really you're naive. Do. You're not the only one. We're with you. <laughs> <laughs> In your work, have you come across anything? You know, a couple of these cases I've covered. Um, it's been cops mostly. I haven't talked to any prosecutors yet, but cops have quit the force. They've been, you know, they've tried to tell their department, hey, this isn't right. I've, I see something going on here. This isn't right. Jermaine Smothers, my first case. It's a cop that was on the Oceanside, California Police Department. And she made enemies and she quit the force because she was like, this is a bad conviction. This is not right. We need to do something. And she basically got pushed out. I mean, have you guys seen anything like that before? Speaking from personal experience, I, I feel lucky that I have not seen something like that before. And maybe like you were saying, maybe the new guard is different. Some protections in place. I'll show you just how serious it is for the law enforcement officers we work with. Um, before we put anyone on the stand, to testify under oath law enforcement. We have to ask them what we call Brady and Giglio questions. Those are Supreme Court cases that tell them that um, where they have to reveal to us if they have ever been accused or adjudicated as being untruthful, not just in their professional roles as law enforcement, but even if it's a divorce proceeding or if there's a news article written about them. I mean, it is a very wide ranging set of questions. And here's the thing. If you are law enforcement and you have been uh, accused and basically adjudicated as being untruthful in any area of your life, you are almost dead to us. We basically decide we can't use you. And if we can't use you at the, as the law enforcement officer and you, if you are integral to the case, we may not be able to prosecute that case. That's how I view my cases. And there are cases where we make the decision, not just based on the evidence, but based on who can testify. If the jury isn't going to believe that person or there's reason to believe there should be doubt about someone who's testifying who's in law enforcement, that could jeopardize the entire case. I just give that example to show how um, Prosecutors are supposed to follow that um, that high bar for our law, our law enforcement officers. Not to mention for prosecutors, we could be disbarred, meaning we lose our entire profession for something called prosecutorial misconduct. And I think you know, I think it would be naive to think that there are no false convictions happening right now. There, there absolutely are. It's a human system, and it's it's their mistakes are going to be made. Um, and and I don't care what the system is, that's going to happen. And that's one another reason we need people like you. To, to shine a light on those cases. But I do think, and I hope that 
there is a culture today in law enforcement and on the prosecution side, at least in my experience, uh, where it is really sort of hammered into our heads that this is about justice and, and this is, we're not going to bring cases where we don't have, where the evidence isn't there, where we don't feel beyond a reasonable doubt that this person is guilty. And I know I have turned down cases and I know Alice has turned down cases when the evidence just wasn't there. And Alice is right. I mean, we ask those questions of those officers and what we're supposed to do is then if we get bad information and we're going to call that officer on the stand, we have to give that to the defense and they get to use that. And they get to say in front of a jury, isn't it true officer so-and-so that you've been found to be dishonest before or that you were accused of planning evidence or whatever the case may be. And that is an officer who is not very useful to, to prosecutors. And, and that means he's not very, he's not very useful to his law enforcement agency. And you hope that those people will be weeded out. So that's what we try and do. It's not, it's not a perfect system and never be a perfect system, but I think that culture is, is probably the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah. And Alice, you mentioned, you know, getting disbarred. Um, I want to talk a little bit about qualified immunity and I am by no means versed in it at all. I just know that so many times in each of these cases, I look at and go, why can't we hold this officer or this prosecutor accountable? And it's always qualified immunity. I mean, how much do people look to that and say, well, it's all right if I do this because I'm kind of immune? Yeah, it's a double-edged sword, right? The reason qualified immunity um, exists is that if an if an officer or if a person who's working within their capacity think that they are following the law, we want to protect those people, right? We want to protect the good faith people who are within the course of conduct. They think the law allows me to make this seizure of drugs. We want that officer to feel like he can, or let's make it guns actually, because guns, um, uh, affect the safety of the officer. If that officer has reasonable belief as he's on duty in his uniform and his sirens are on and he sees a gun and he thinks the law allows me to take the gun, later if it's challenged that that was somehow a violation of constitutional rights for the defendant, we want qualified immunity to exist to protect that officer who in good faith thought he was operating under the color of law. Because otherwise you have a lot of officers who are second guessing themselves and maybe not grabbing that gun and officers are shot or innocent past, uh, bystanders are shot, right? And so that's that's the reason it exists, but you are right. It can also be a shield and I'll let Brett take that. Yeah, I mean, it's been abused uh, a lot. And I think honestly, qualified immunity does not need to be abolished for all the reasons Alice said, but it definitely needs to be reformed and courts need to actually apply it as it's supposed to be applied. When you look at a lot of the cases that are the most egregious ones, the court basically says, well, yeah, you know, he shot the kid when he was trying to shoot the dog because the dog was barking at him. But we're going to find that that's never really been adjudicated before. So maybe he didn't know that that was an unreasonable action to take. And it's like, of course, that was an unreasonable action to take. You know, you're, you're taking qualified immunity instead of applying it in good faith. You're just using it as an automatic get out of jail free card for law enforcement. And you don't need to do that. So uh, I think a nice, healthy balance is good. I'm glad people are looking at it. I'm glad there's pressure to reform it. I think there's a lot of momentum in that direction, both um, in the courts and in the legislature. So I, I think you're going to see movement on that in the next few years. Have you got, you know, what got you into wanting to be a prosecutor? Have you been on the other side? I mean, what what was your thought process in going into that? Well, I so I spent a year at a law firm, a big law firm in Washington, um, and I hated it. I, I hated I hated going into work every day and working for multi-billion dollar corporations on cases they didn't even really care about and cases I certainly didn't care about that didn't really matter to anybody. And after that, I went and clerked for a district court judge 
And the clerkship's just where you work for a judge for a little while. And I worked for a district court judge for a couple of years. And that was really the first time I ever saw the justice system in action. And it was, it was a real eye-opener for me on how the system works and the good it can do and the bad it can do. And I saw good lawyers and I saw bad lawyers. And coming out of that, becoming being a prosecutor was something that from that point forward, I wanted to do. And it took me a little while to get there. I did a lot of other sort of legal jobs on the way, but it was something I always came back to. And so when this opportunity came uh, to do the job I'm doing now, it was something I jumped on. But other than that one year at a law firm, I've always been in public service. I like public service. I like helping people. I want to make the world a better place. I want to make our community safer. That's something that that, that inspires me much more than getting up and billing you know, 2000 hours for Google every year. My story is something similar like that. I didn't think I'd ever be a lawyer. First of all, I'm, my parents are immigrants. They did not go to law school. Um, they don't know, really understand law school in the United States. Um, but I came from, um, you know, family members who uh, were sent to labor camps, um, who really had no due process in the countries that they lived in. And really by chance, I was born in the United States. And this was not something I appreciated truly even throughout college. And it wasn't until I started um, uh, working as a lawyer. And again, I didn't think I'd be a lawyer even after going to law school. I did civil law. Um, you know, that's how I know a lot about FOIA. I did FOIA litigation and um, uh, I defended policies and uh, constitutional defense, nothing like criminal law. And I really began to see how due process and um, rule of law gave me the way of life that I get to enjoy that a lot of my family members who don't live in the United States um, have have the privilege of having. And so to have, I mean, I still get a rush when I get to stand up and represent, you know, the people, um, which isn't something um, that I take lightly. Um, I recognize that that power is only bestowed upon me um, and I shouldn't abuse it. So I, I feel a lot of privilege and pride in getting to do this type of work. And I guess, you know, it just got me thinking, is there a lot of pressure for you to prosecute cases? You know, is there ever, um, you know, you talk about wanting to get justice for the families. I mean, is that where some of this, you know, gray territory of, of getting into a wrongful conviction comes from? Do you guys feel pressure to, you know, get justice and prosecute cases? So there's metrics, just like in every other um, uh, job, right? Like if I sat and was like, you know, I'm really thinking about how much justice I'm going to bring, but I don't prosecute a single case for a couple of years. Someone's kind of probably going to be like, that's a lot of taxpayer dollars going to just you thinking about it. So of course there's metrics, but in terms of pressure, um, I am lucky that in my entire legal career, I've never felt pressured to come to an outcome. And I have had situations where um, it was a high profile situation locally. You know, there's a lot of news media, people wanted something done and we had to do something. And I had a situation where I did not think there was a legal case to be made. Um, and I made a very, very strong argument that even if, the media or the the victims wanted this done, there was not a legal path forward and we should not do something like that. And my superiors accepted that. And it was not easy. It was a lot more work. Actually, it would have been easier to prosecute the case. And I only give that example to say that it's sometimes more work to maybe take the route um, that seems like there's no um, outcome, you know, in the end, because there's more work on the behind the scenes. So I am very lucky that I don't think I've ever been told to have an outcome at the end of the day. I'm told to bring cases that I think I can win because the evidence is there. 
Brett might. I don't know. Brett, maybe your morals are low. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, well, I think. Well, I think number one, Maggie. I think you make a really good point, and you really put your finger on something. It is certainly true that there are just corrupt people out there, and there are corrupt people in prosecutors' offices, and there are corrupt people who are trying to bring cases just to get their names out there or whatever. But I think the bigger problem and the thing you really have to push against and the thing that can affect even good prosecutors is the sort of subtle pressure, either because of the facts of the case, maybe the media coverage of the case, uh, or maybe, maybe even just to meet some sort of metric. I'll say this, there's plenty of crime out there. It's not hard to meet whatever sort of number you need to meet. Um, what's more difficult is when you have a case that either has a lot of attention or there's a lot of pressure or somebody saying like, hey, we need to do something about this guy. We need to get this person off the street or, hey, this really terrible thing happened and we can't let, we can't let this victim go. They need justice. You need to arrest this person. And you see that. And sometimes that pressure is good pressure. You know, we, we've, we've all seen instances where it is good to have pressure on the authorities to act in cases where they might not act otherwise. But it also can be very pernicious because it can lead people to put aside that nagging doubt in the back of their head that says, I don't know whether or not this person did that and say, well, we'll roll the dice, whatever. It's up to the jury. And that's really not something that you should do. Yes, it is up to the jury and we believe in the jury system. But the first step is the prosecutor who needs to look at the evidence and look at the case and decide for themselves whether or not this is a case that should be brought. So let's get to Darrell. I sent y'all the case files and I'm going to give a quick recap to listeners. If you guys post this just so your listeners know, um, we are talking about 2009. This is a shooting. Two cars pulled up to an intersection in Detroit and a shootout occurred and one man ended up dead. Um, this was described as gang-related, and Darrell Ewing and Dorico Searcy were convicted of the murder. What we find out is that Darrell had a pretty solid alibi. His family vouched for him being at a funeral. We can, you know, discuss how you guys, how you would approach that kind of alibi. Um, family members or a loved one, you know, vouching for someone. But the big thing in this is that someone has repeatedly come forward confessing to this murder before the trial even started. So Darrell has been in prison since 2009. That's over a decade. And I want to dive into this with you guys. Um, so when you started looking at this, where do you start? How did you, how do you start looking at a case like this? You mean in reviewing this case or if this were our case? Yeah. Your, your friend Maggie sends you a case and goes, look at this. What did you do? Where did you start? We listened to Maggie's <laughs> podcast. <first. laughs> uh, we really do do that. And then the next thing is you look for the underlying documents. If there's a trial transcript and any opinions by the district court, by the appeals courts, because there's a lot of um, legal action in this case. And um, that's important. A lot of people don't know that those are publicly available documents. And you should go read them because here's the thing. Not all judges do this, but Opinions, court opinions are supposed to be written so the lay person can understand them. They should not be full of legal jargon. And if you are reading a piece of legal work that you don't understand because of legal jargon, it's poorly written. Mm, because it's supposed, to be, yeah, it's supposed to be accessible to everyone. That is the purpose of law. It is not supposed to be um, something that is only for the some elite bar. 
Well, that's, fact, that's you don't another... have to be a lawyer or a JD to be on the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, historically, the very first um, U.S. Supreme Court justices in our country were not uh, lawyers at all, uh, because the purpose was you have a jury of your peers. You have people who have everyday experiences, who live life alongside you, who understand how life works. And there's no special training that needs to come with that. And that is kind of that is why we have a jury system of your peers who are not lawyers. Yeah, and obviously the jury became important in this case, which I'm sure we'll talk about. This is an interesting case. I find this case interesting because Tyree Washington, the man who from the beginning, from before we even went to trial, has said, I did this. You have the wrong guy. Um, He wrote to the prosecutors. There was this CI that is a very reputable CI, you know, an FBI agent vouched for him. Um, saying, look, this guy says he did this. And the prosecutor dismissed it and said, we already have the guy we're looking for. So I want to talk to you guys about that. I mean, if you were in this situation and you're, you're about to prosecute somebody, which in my opinion, it was a weak case anyway. We don't have ballistics. We have some like kind of shaky witness ID. I mean, this man was looking down in his car when he said he identified Jarrell. Um, in my very unexpertise opinion, it was not a strong case. We don't have a murder weapon with the ballistics or whatever. Um, and then you have a guy coming forward and confessing. I mean, how would you handle this? How would you handle this confession? How would you handle somebody, you know, an FBI agent coming to you and saying, I think you're getting this wrong. I mean, talk, talk me through this. So first of all, what people may not know is that this is a strange phenomenon. Um, Sometimes people do confess to uh, crimes that they did not do, especially if they're already sitting in um, prison or jail somewhere. I don't understand the psychology behind it, but I only say that, um, and I'm not saying it happened in this case, I only say that to say that just because someone writes to you as the prosecutor or an agent on the case that they did the crime that you're now prosecuting someone else for, that does not automatically mean you stop investigating the case against your target or prosecuting the case against your target. You're supposed to do your due diligence. If you get something like that, because that is serious, right? We don't get those types of confessions all the time. They're rare, but people still do them. You're supposed to run down that guy's story. You're supposed to talk to lots of people. That FBI agent who vouched for, or the, it's, I'm sorry, it's not an FBI agent. I think it's an informant who worked for the government, um, uh, vouched for him. That's helpful, but it's not definitive because that informant may not have worked on this case. The informant is probably still an informant, meaning they probably haven't been burned yet. Being burned just means that you reveal that they work for the government and therefore can no longer continue their previous life of probably living normally on the streets to be an informant, right? So if this informant is still living that life, we also have to weed out, you know, truthfulness. Um, And I only say that because there's a lot of due diligence that needs to happen. Now, are there maybe some agents or prosecutors who don't want to do that extra work? Absolutely possible. Um, But I only say that first to say, when you get something like that, you don't automatically stop what you're doing. Now, we don't know all the reasons um, that prosecutors said, no, we have the guy. Hopefully that's not out of laziness. Hopefully you're not just saying, oh, I'm like 90% there on this trial. I'm not starting over. Hopefully what happened was the person investigated. The story said it's not credible. There's no way that could have happened. So we have to discount this confession. That's one way to think about it. Now, that's not specific to this case. Yeah. And and I'll just say in this case, I have a lot of thoughts on this case. We could talk about this for a while. But 
Uh, let me say this. I think this is a case. You've got some cases that you have covered where the prosecutors seem like they are bad people who did bad things. This case, I think, is actually just a really difficult case. I don't see in this case the kind of prosecutorial misconduct maybe you've seen in some of your other cases. I think what you have here is you have one person who's dead and one person who's injured, who's been shot. There's probably a lot of pressure on these, these prosecutors to deal with this. I do think, and you talked about this a little bit, I do think there probably was some, this guy is a high-ranking member in a gang, sure, sure it would be great if we could get him off the street thing that was going on here. To be honest with you, when I look at the filings, I kind of don't think either one of them did this. I kind of don't, I think, I actually think that the guy who confessed is probably lying. And it seems to me based on the evidence that, that Mr. Ewing probably wasn't there. And the reason I say that he, the guy who, who did it is probably lying. And, and I've, I haven't read the trial transcript. I don't know, but just based, based on the filings, it seems as though one of the critical reasons the prosecution has said that they don't believe him is the person who was driving the van that was shot who survived, who drove to the hospital and unfortunately the passenger was killed, says that the shooter got out of their car and started shooting at the van from behind the van. And Mr. Washington in his confession says, at least according to what the prosecution filed, so I'm assuming this is true, that he walked up to the, to the passenger side window, knocked on the window to get their attention, and then shot the people. That's a pretty big inconsistency. If it's true that the shooting actually occurred from behind the van, then I can understand why the prosecution's like, look, we just don't believe this guy. We think he's lying. And if he is lying, it may be one of those weird circumstances where that actually hurt Mr. Ewing because maybe he wasn't there, wasn't doing anything, but then somebody comes in and tells a story that's not believable and it actually hurts his case. And it makes some members of the jury think, see, he got that guy to lie for mm. him. Now, I don't know that for sure. And I haven't, I haven't looked into this case as much as I would want to if I, for instance, was writing this appeal. But that's one of the reasons I think this is a really interesting case. Another reason, like Brett said, I'm not, I don't, I'm not convinced that there is the type of prosecutorial misconduct that you've covered in your other episodes in this case. And that's because Tyree Washington's um, confession was put before the jury. This wasn't hidden. Um, the prosecution didn't keep it under wraps. This was actually presented to the jury. And this is actually, I think, a, a result of the jury deliberating and imperfect outcome, right? This is an imperfect system with an imperfect outcome. Now, if the prosecution kept secret Tyree's confession, absolutely, absolutely prosecutorial misconduct, but we don't have that here. And that is a very big difference. You mean in terms of like a Brady? So they did, they did not allow Tyree to um, uh, testify. Only the CI was able to testify what Tyree had said. So that was something that did happen. They did not allow him to testify, just the CI could. Um, so I think it could have been not allowed to testify because he was, do you know the reason? I only say that because the defense can also call witnesses and I'm just trying to understand why he wasn't allowed. That I don't know. I'm not, I'm not clear why he didn't testify, but I know the prosecution definitely tried successfully got that suppressed and only the CI could testify as to what Tyree said. Um, so I do think that could have gone a little differently if Tyree was able to take the stand. So, okay, so we talked about Tyree. Now, I do want to talk about the alibi. So multiple people from his family testified that he was at this celebration of life, something similar to a funeral, wake, whatever it was, something for a deceased relative. I mean, as a prosecutor, if you are looking into somebody and you find out they have this kind of alibi, family members saying they're here, they're here, 
there I looked into to try and find if there was photographic evidence. I could not find any. It was just multiple family members saying, yes, he was here. He was here. We had a celebration of life ceremony. Of course he was here. How would you approach that? As a prosecutor, I mean, obviously, if you hear that, you have a lot of, I mean, you're thinking, okay, there's a couple of things that may or may not be going on in this case that I wonder about, and I just don't know. One of them is how much evidence the prosecution may have that's not admissible. And that's the sort of background thing that we can just never know. We don't know what the police and what the investigative officers are telling the prosecution about this case that maybe could never come in into a, into a court for all sorts of reasons that is really leading them to believe this guy did it. And if there is a lot of that background evidence that, that isn't really admissible and they can't really use, maybe it leads them to think, well, you know, maybe mom or sister or grandma is just saying this. Look, I think when you get this kind of exculpatory evidence coming in, whether it's an alibi, whether it's bad forensics, whether or not it's somebody else who's claiming to do it, the prosecutors needed, and I hope they did, to take a moment to really sit down and think about, are we right here? Do we have this right? And Alice and I, we work on a lot of cases together, and we spend a lot of time talking about this. Even when we think it's, it's rock solid, we have sat in a room recently and said, is there any way that we're wrong about this? Is there any other way to explain this? Is there anything else that, that we're missing? And I, I assume they did that. I hope they did that here. And it's important, and one of the reasons it's important is because prosecutors really are the first step in preventing wrongful convictions. They need to be making the hard decisions about what to charge and what not to charge. It's an important part of the job, and it's a part of the job I think people forget about. Yeah, that's really great to hear. And I just want to say, in my opinion, I don't think that they did that. I, I truly don't, and I and I talk about it a little in this in my opinion, and me and Darrell's mother talked about this, you know, I do think that there was this kind of, um, they're trying to clean up Detroit. We're, we're in that era. We're cleaning up Detroit. We're just scooping up particularly young black kids off the street, getting them for a crime. And, and in my opinion, that's kind of what I think this was. He was in a gang and Darrell talks about how this wasn't a gang. He was a club promoter. Um, Everyone testified that Durrell, even if there was beefs, he was not involved in these beefs. He didn't even really know Searcy. He knew him from the street, but the, the connection was very circumstantial. It was a phone call on his sister's phone to Searcy. It was all very, um, to me, again, I feel like it was circumstantial. Um, <laughs> and I guess, you know, can you talk to me a little bit about building a case on circumstantial evidence? And you can tell me I'm wrong if you want to. No, no, Maggie, the reason both of us kind of chuckled when you asked that question is you just posed a perfect law school question, which is weightier or which is more appropriate to use direct or circumstantial evidence. And a lot of people may wrongly answer direct evidence, of course. And the answer is in the court of law, they are equal. <laughs> and a lot of people may not know that. And, you know, I mean, what Alice says in Ronnie Long's case, Ronnie Long just got his pardon. Congratulations to Ronnie. In Ronnie's long case, Long's case, there was a witness, right? I mean, he was identified by the, the victim. Now, you do a really good job of showing why that direct evidence is faulty. And I think we are seeing more and more the problem with direct evidence. And the only difference is direct evidence is just somebody standing up and saying, yeah, I saw him do it. I saw him shoot the person, right? So I think what 
what you're what you're pointing out is weak circumstantial evidence. DNA is circumstantial evidence. Fingerprints are just is circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence is just anything that's not he did it. It's anything where you have to draw an inference. Well, his fingerprints are on the gun. That probably means he held the gun. That probably means he shot the guy, right? In this case, the problem that I have with this case is it really seems like we can quibble about whether or not it was a gang. I think he was involved in a criminal enterprise. I think he was a club promoter that sold drugs. I think he, I think his group probably did have problems with this other group. It's probably the case that somebody that he knows or associated with did this. He probably doesn't even know about it. Probably doesn't even know who did it. I think he got drug into it because of that. And I think there was a lot of weak circumstantial evidence, weak identifications. I mean, one of the biggest problems in this case isn't circumstantial evidence. It's the fact that the person saw him through a rear view mirror, right? I mean, it's like the worst possible way to identify somebody through weird, you, while you're trying to avoid being shot. Um, so I, I think that's the biggest problem with this case is there's just not a lot of good evidence that he was even anywhere near the scene of the crime. And if I had, you know, it's uh, continue to predict things, I think he's going to get a new trial. And I think if you get, I don't think, I think a new trial will be ordered. I do not think a trial will ever happen in this case. I think he is probably, if I were the prosecutor in this case, I would be seriously considering at least offering him an Alfred plea and just being done with this. So I was going to ask you, but Brett, I think you might've answered it. I mean, would either of you have prosecuted this case? I mean, that's, that's a tough one. I hate to step into this prosecutor's shoes. I mean, like I said, I know, I know that you, you probably don't agree with this on this. I just don't think this is a malicious prosecution. I don't think it was either, but I do think, <laughs> go ahead. So here's the problem. Here's the problem. If you have a gun case, right? Like a felon who somebody's been convicted of a felony, you can't own a, you can't own a firearm. You've been convicted of a felony, and if you're found with a firearm, you can you can be charged with that in both state and federal court. Usually, if you had this kind of evidence in a felon in a firearm case, you'd probably just let it go, right? You'd probably say, you know what, we're just gonna let this one go. Not a lot of good evidence. Really close case. Give the guy the benefit of the doubt. We'll see him next time if there is a next time. The problem in this case is you do, you have someone, you have a dead body. You have someone who's been murdered. You have someone who, someone else who was injured. And I think this goes back to a question you asked much earlier about pressure. It's not pressure from the boss necessarily, or pressure even from the public. It's just the pressure of the police are coming to you and they're saying, look, we think this guy did it. Here's the evidence. He did it. This guy is dead. You need to do this. Turning down that kind of prosecution, that is hard. I mean, that is a hard one to do because of, of what you're, you're essentially saying. Because once again, it's kind of like the West Memphis Three. Nobody in West Memphis is investigating those crimes. There's no police officer out trying to figure out who actually killed those kids. They got the Alfred plea. They're guilty. They're done, right? And in this case, if the prosecution had said, we're not going to prosecute, that's the end of the investigation. That murder is never going to be solved because the police are like, look, we found the guy. You said not to prosecute it. We found the guy. We're done. And I think that that is that is the hardest question you've asked all night is that one. That's a really good point that, um, of course, we work with law enforcement, but we cannot investigate cases without law enforcement. If they're done with a case, we can't go out and run the beat on the street, unfortunately. If they're getting the directive from their office, you could be the closest of friends, but they're like, look, we have to professionally disagree here. We have solved the case. We are closing our case. We can't open a case to investigate. We don't investigate cases. We ultimately prosecute. But th there's, there's two sides of that, right? 
Yeah, the best the best relationships they they push you and you push them. You know, they're pushing you to do a better job and you're pushing them to do more investigation. And 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 I think usually usually and it is it is weird. I mean, it's an interesting. It is kind of unless you've been in it, you just don't know. You just don't know this that they're they're you're working hand in hand. But but you know you, you gotta every we're we're independent of each other. Right. So there, there are times that there are disagreements and there are arguments and there are falling outs and there are hurt feelings. And there are times when we don't want to prosecute a case and they really want to prosecute a case. I mean, that happened. So it is an interesting relationship. So, okay. So let's talk about now. Darrell is in the middle of his appeals process. And something that took me until I started looking into this stuff and doing this podcast um, a while to understand is that Darrell is not appealing on what's called actual innocence. You know, Darrell does, you know, he he says he is actually innocent. But what we're talking about when we're, we're talking about Darrell trying to get out of prison or on some technicalities, the jury, he's not trying to get out right at this moment on I am innocent. Here's the evidence. Let me out. What we're talking about for listeners is the fact that there was a jury member who almost immediately after trial said that I was pressured to give a guilty conviction by other jurors who did their own outside research, which Brett, as you mentioned, you cannot bring outside research into a jury room. Um, so let's talk about the actual appeals and the logistics of Darrell's appeals. So I've done a, I've done a lot of appeals. So I, this is one thing I do a lot is read these lower court uh, opinions. And there are a lot of them in this case, because what you essentially had is Mr. Ewing Darrell. He was convicted and, and the way it works, he's convicted in state court. So the first appeals all go through state court. He makes his appeals in state court. Those appeals were all rejected. At that point, he then goes to federal court, something called habeas corpus, which people may or may not have heard of. It's a Latin term. Doesn't really matter what it means. Basically, it means if you've been convicted in state court after your state appeals are done, you can go to federal court and you can say, hey, I've got this federal constitutional issue and the state court didn't deal with it. So I want you to deal with it here. And the one in this case is whether or not the jury was tainted by outside information. So he goes, he loses in state court. Then he goes to federal court and the district court says, yeah. Actually, I think there's a problem here. Stuff not from the case came into the jury room. And that is just fundamentally problematic. The whole point of the trial, of the rules of evidence, of having a judge, of having a defense attorney who objects to questions and objects to evidence is ensuring that the only evidence that the jury sees, the only information the jury has about this case is evidence that is properly before them, that is not unduly prejudicial, that won't lead them to make emotional decisions or decisions based on things outside the case or the, or the person's race or maybe the groups they're involved in. Keep that out, decide on the facts. And in this case, there was information coming in that would never have came in through the courts. And, Brett, and in fact, information that the courts had specifically said shouldn't come in. Yes. And let, you know, Brett said something really important in there that I want your listeners to, to understand. The relief asked for in the habeas proceedings in federal court was not to overturn the conviction. And that is very difficult for a lot of people to understand. Now, the federal court, because they did not sit in the trial, they need to have the evidentiary hearing before the court that is um, that has the jurisdiction of the trial, right? So the federal courts could not even say this conviction is bad. They can't throw out the conviction. That was not the relief brought before them. All they can say is open it up and have a hearing. 
Right. And there was a hearing, um, a three judge panel ruled again that Darrell should be retried or released. One thing I think is interesting about this case and that I think would be interesting for you to focus on, I think your focus has mostly been on prosecutions and prosecutors and the problems that prosecutors can have and where they can go astray. This is a really interesting case because it's about juries and it's about how juries can go astray. And in this country, and traditionally going back to the British system, but we just have huge faith in juries. The whole point of the jury is to protect people from the government because at the end of the day, it's not some government officer who's going to decide whether or not you're guilty. It's a jury of your peers. And because of that, our system is really stacked against defendants in appeals. Once a jury says you are guilty, Unless you can show some fundamental defect in the trial, it is going to be almost impossible to overturn that. And you've seen that in this case. But I think it's worth discussing and it's worth debating in society whether or not we put too much faith in that system. You know, also maybe my naivete, but I feel like jurors these days are more aware of these kinds of issues. They might be looking more critically. I mean, certainly we're much more aware of wrongful convictions these days, coerced confessions. I think jurors might be a little more educated today. And I I don't know, maybe I'm just wrong. <laughs> no, no, Maggie, I think you're absolutely right. You've hit on something. I'll give an example that's not directly on point here, but um, before all the crime shows on like the CSIs, the DNA testing, before those shows were really popular, you never needed DNA in trial, right? As those shows became popular over a decade ago, over and over, we've heard from prosecutors who are more senior than us. They were like, once those CSI and SVU, all of the shows came out, everyone wanted DNA, even when it was a case not about DNA. They're like, eyewitness, you saw him shoot the guy. Was there DNA? Nope. Why didn't you send it off for DNA? They're like, because there's cameras and we're all here. And the jury will say, nope, I watch lots of CSI and there's got to be a DNA. And law enforcement actually had to change the way that they investigated cases because jurors wanted DNA. And now you're absolutely right. I think there has been a lot more light shined on um, improper conduct for law enforcement and for prosecutors. And I do think the average citizen is more aware that these can be issues um, that they need to look out for. So we've seen it. even just in um, the the jurors that we see now, they definitely ask more probing questions. They're not willing to just take a law enforcement badge as truth. So I think there is hope um, with education of the the people, right? Yeah. And I do have one last question, and it's probably the toughest. So um, Kim Worthy has just put in again her her newest appeal um so now they're waiting for the supreme court to rule on this i mean i guess you know i've emailed her multiple times and you know every time she emails me she goes we're not talking about actual innocence we're just talking about um you know the the juror misconduct which i i understand that's what we're talking about but I do also wonder sometimes, like, how do you sleep at night? How do you sleep at night when we know there's another confession and you don't have any evidence and there is no gun and just, just let it go. Can you just let it go? Like, you know, that's what I'm just like, why are you still appealing? Why are you fighting tooth and nail? And Brett, you talked a little bit about this, but like, I do want to know from you guys, like, why would someone fight tooth and nail? And she came in as this whole, like, progressive district attorney and we're gonna we started a conviction review unit and then you have this case like Darrell where it's like every time the court rules she is appealing and I think listeners want to know maybe what what is that about 
So one one duty that people may not know that prosecutors have um, that they are accountable to the taxpayers is that when there is a conviction, it is actually our job, whether we like it or not, to defend it. Right. And that can be very frustrating to people. But when they're when the jury has spoken, we are supposed to defend that conviction and they're supposed to be adversarial. I'm sorry, they're supposed to be vigorous advocacy on both sides. Right now, because let me flip it on its head and show you why that is the system you should want. Let's say that the jury comes back not guilty and the prosecutor can say, I think he's guilty and I get to decide that. That could never happen, obviously, in our legal system right now. But you see why it's flipped and you don't want to give that power to the prosecutor to be able to do that. Now, the decision not to appeal is a very, very big one, especially when you have a jury conviction. A lot goes into that. There are pressures, elections, like you said, whether that's right or wrong. There's the victims. There's the system, right? There is actually the protection of the jury system um, that you are going after. Now, that's all talking pie in the sky, not specifically about this case, but it can be very difficult for people to say, why are you trying to defend a conviction? Because that that is the job of the prosecutor at the end of the day, because no one else will. That's the thing. The taxpayer can't defend that, pro- defend that conviction. The victim can't defend that conviction. The only person who can is the prosecution. Yeah. And, and like I said, I've done a lot of appeals and I mean, a, a couple things on this. Number one, we do have an adversarial system. So there is this idea that he has someone who's fighting for him and there's somebody who fights for the, the jury verdict. Like I said earlier, we put a lot of faith in jury verdicts. We have a jury verdict here. We have 12 people who said he was guilty, but I don't have any problem with them making that argument and allowing the justice system in the end to decide. And if the Supreme court of Michigan says which I think they will, they will say, I think probably they just won't even take this appeal. They'll just say, no, lower court got it right. Um, then it's going to move forward. And I think one of the things about this case, and Alice and I talked about this a little bit, this is not a case where the system has failed. It's a, it's a case where the system is working. The thing I think that is bothersome is how long it takes. You know, this has been going on for so long and the system is working, but it just, the appellate process is so it takes so it takes years and years and years. And I think one of the frustrations you have is every time she appeals, that adds another year. And if he's innocent, it's another year that he's in jail. And I think that's definitely something to think about. And I think it's something that goes into the calculus about whether or not to appeal. But Alice is right. Just as a matter of course for every prosecutor's office in the country, the default is you defend the verdict unless it is so obviously wrong that you, you, would, you would be embarrassed to stand up in front of a judge and make the argument you're making. And the reason that is, is of course, this case involves a real person, a real person's life, but the appeal is more than just that case. This is about all future jury misconduct. Imagine the loophole if all it took was the first prong of jury misconduct to come in. All that has to happen is for the jury to bring in something from outside and then any um, that, that any jury conviction could be overturned. Imagine if you are that one holdout and you know that it's going to not go your way, you're not going to be able to turn this jury around, bring in a Facebook page. You know what's going to happen because of that loophole, right? That can be frustrating, but that's why these appeals actually are important for for the um, prosecution to continue because it's not just about the one case in front of you. It's about the entire justice system and we hope that the entire system will work 
on the whole for people. It probably failed in this case. And that's why we hope and we think that he will get a new trial. Um, but what you're also having to think about and preserve is the entire justice system. Yeah, it's amazing to, to hear everything you guys have said. And that totally makes sense. And here's the thing. Um, pressure does work, right? Media attention does work. So you covering this case, it is doing something, if not even just to let the rest of lay people who may not follow this case closely know about this type of work so they can be on the lookout for this type of conduct. So what you're doing is very important. I bet you your emails don't just go into a junk folder. They're red, right? She may not be changing her position because of your emails, but when people write us, when people call us, it doesn't go into a deaf ear. It really doesn't because we're humans too. Yeah. I mean, I don't, obviously don't have any inside information, but I have a feeling that they're doing what they think they need to do and what they have to do and what their sort of ethical obligations are as prosecutors. I think once the appellate route is foreclosed, a lot of the stuff that you've been doing and other people have been doing is going to have an effect. And like I said, we'll, we can come back and you can laugh in my face if they decide to, to retry this case. But I kind of wonder if once the appeals are done. That's going to be my next question. <laughs> I mean, what are the what are the chances of them retrying it? I mean, at this point, we still have Terry Washington confessing. We still don't have ballistics. We, st- we have a very shaky. I mean, what are the chances of retrying this case? I mean, if anything, the fact that so much time has passed works against the prosecution. Memories fade over time. Your eyewitnesses, man, you put a decade between them. That is not very convincing to a jury. Uh, people die. Literally, witnesses die from old age. Um, evidence gets lost. That Those things all happen and they factor into the decision to prosecute. So in addition to the, the points that you've made, time works against prosecution too. So I wouldn't want to retry it, <laughs> if anything, for the work. <laughs> I'm so happy you guys joined me at this late of an hour on a Friday. No, thank you for having thank us. So and um, again, thank you for the work you do. We think it's very important. Yeah. Yeah, we love your show. Uh, your show is awesome. Yeah. I could listen to you talk about this stuff forever. I love your show. Everyone needs to listen to the Prosecutors Podcast. I'm obviously going to post it and link to it. You guys are absolutely amazing. Um, Thank you, Maggie. You Thank you so much. Thank you, Maggie. Y'all, Darrell is still in the appeal process and there is still time to write prosecutor Kim Worthy and tell her to release Darrell and not delay this process any longer. Please write her. We can make a difference. We have all of this on our website. You can also find ways to listen to the Prosecutors Podcast on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. If you want to support the work I'm doing, please, please rate and review and share this show. It takes two seconds and the payoff is huge. The more people who hear and share, the more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at ObsessedNetwork.com.